I said I'd save the subject of the morning further this evening. Um, and so I intend to do that. And uh, the subject this morning was all about a felt, a felt Christianity, a felt religion. And I took you to the words of Joseph Hart, uh, a great hymn writer of the past in the 1800s, and how he said that true religion's more than notion, something must be known and felt. And usually when that is quoted, and it is quoted quite a lot by people, uh, ministers and the like, the emphasis is on the, the feeling, the feeling. Does it mean something to you? So that it's not simply up here, but it's in here, in your heart, in your heart. And one labored to try and uh, bring home that point uh, in what we said uh, this morning. And I mentioned a particular hymn that is sung a lot in grace circles uh, from my time in those circles. Uh, oh, how the grace of God amazes me. And you may remember that I also spoke about uh, this morning that it's the question of the heart. It's the question of the heart. And uh, it goes back to some of the things that our Lord said in Matthew 15. And if you could turn again to Matthew 15, it will be helpful because, again, it's the, the heart. The problem lies in the heart, dear friends. And uh, there in there is our Savior speaking to the Jewish leaders, and uh, he says, uh, Isaiah got it right when he said, these people draw near to me with their mouths, with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. A religion, as it were, of ceremony, a religion of certain um, sacramental um, events which are done usually by priests and the like. Um, there are many religions in the world, but uh, the Christian religion should go well beyond, should go well beyond being a ritual and enter into the meaning. What does it all mean? What does it all mean? Well, if to the Jewish people then it meant nothing more than outward observances, which is the complaint of our Savior about them, um, then it's got to mean something more than outward observances to us. In other words, not just coming along to church. You know, that's just an outward something that we do. It's not crossing ourselves. It's not holy water. It's not being baptized. Those things in themselves mean nothing. It, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, dear friends. He wasn't baptized. And that should ever make us go back and say to ourselves, well, anybody who's in a Baptist church and says to themselves, well, you know, baptism is very, very important. Ah, oh, be careful. If the Lord said to be baptized, then you must indeed confess the Lord in baptism. He wants you to do that. But uh, don't put so much emphasis upon it as if uh, salvation and forgiveness of sins was dependent upon it. Not at all. The thief on the cross was never baptized. But today you shall be with me in paradise. So outward religion and the things 
last week's company outlook meeting. Um, these things will not save a soul. Um, the truth that spiritually a religion is one of knowing and feeling, it has an impact. It has an impact on our lives. I like to speak about my own experience as a young man of 15 because I just know that by the grace of God, Things which I'd always denied and resisted uh, were things which came alive to me and I realized my fault in the matter and I realized there was a need for a turning and a reflection upon what I read in the Bible. And it was good. My father said to me, you'll grow up, my son. I've probably told you that before now. And many a person believes that it's just one of those things that young people get wrapped up in. And I said, Dad, I, I think it's too good to be true. I won't grow out of it. I don't think it's too good to be true. I love my father a great deal, as you know. And uh, my father loved me as well. And he said to me, in a letter I treasure, really, uh, going to Bible college, uh, he said, uh, he wrote and he said, keep going, son. You'll make a pastor yet. And I thought, well, to have my dad say that, I was pleased because he knew I'd stuck to my guns on various issues of family life and that it was too deep for me, too deep to simply be something I could cast away. I, I, I always think of things, you know, and I say, remember that, Richard. Um, when I was um, pastoring in the East End of London, there was a, a lady who turned up and uh, I said, hey, I haven't seen you for a long while. Nice to see you today. I said, so what brings you along? She said, well, I had nothing better to do. And I thought to myself, well, if you did have what you esteemed to be better, you would not have come. I didn't want to be rude. I didn't want to say it to her. But I thought... If you really had it in your heart to want to know more about our Savior, you would have been along before now. You had nothing better to do. When you know Christ, it is life-changing. It changes you from the inside. It's all to do with the heart. Now, that passage in Matthew, which uh, I said we would extend in our minds, um, was a lot of kind of lip service. It was simply doing what was outward but never inward when it came to the observances of God's rules. And uh, our Lord is referring to the heart. The problem lies in the heart. They thought the issue lay in observances. What you did with your hands where you were on a certain day and other things that were related to ritualistic religion. I don't know what your background is. I don't know whether it's a, a, a ritualistic religion in which you think that providing you turn up at church, that will kind of put you in good stead with God. And on Judgment Day, you'll always be able to say, I was a church worshiper. Or whether you realize that that will have no way of persuading God to accept you into the courts of heaven. So, what about this heart? 
what's wrong with our hearts. But our Lord, <coughs> in Matthew 15, speaks about that. <coughs> They're all to for outward observance. And uh, what you eat, what you drink, whether you wash your hands before you eat meals, nothing to do with hygiene there. That was a, a sacramental exercise. come out of the mouth, but it's not only that. When our Lord speaks of these things a little later in that chapter 15 there, he says, uh, it's the things that come out of the mouth and come from the heart of a man or a woman, of course. <coughs> and they defile a man. Now what are we talking about? We're talking about the things that make you either well-pleasing to things that, uh, as it were, are, are not accepted by God, the service. We're talking about things like that, defiling the man. The only thing that really counts, you know that, it's the only thing that really counts. It's how do you appear before God? How do you appear before God? Well, what comes out of your mouth and all your thoughts, what comes out of your mind, transfers, as it were, itself into words. <laughs> but out of the heart, the heart, again, out of the inner man, again, alludes to the inner person. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, theft, false witness, that's lies, blasphemy, that's defiance against these are the things which defile a man. And as with regard to eating with unwashed hands, they do not defile a man. Not in the eyes of God. I think there's very good cause to speak bluntly to ourselves in private, as it were, about the things we say and wish we hadn't said. is a good thing to think over the list that is given to us here in Matthew 15 and say to ourselves evil thoughts hateful thoughts are there people that we actually hate are there people that hate us oh yes well they illustrate the point but what about you what about adulteries oh we love those films and they're uh, on the uh, moral the edge of moral impurity that we like to go and watch them or to turn the television and watch them or hear adulteries, fornications and again ways and means by which as it were we take more than we should on account of certain things which have occurred perhaps it's an inheritance or something of that particular nature or perhaps it's convenient for us not to tell the full 
this book which we refer to. Out of the heart, all these things proceed. What, what our Lord is saying is that it's in your nature. Because the heart is not just the emotion, it's the center of you. It's the center of you. And God wants a whole of you. And we mentioned this the, this morning, uh, that lovely hymn, as I said, and I said it to you again in verse 7. Come now the whole of me, eyes, ears, and voice. Join me, creation all, with joyful noise. Praise him who broke the chain, holding me in sin's domain. Set me free again. Sing and rejoice. A felt religion, that's what we spoke about. A life-changing religion, a life-changing Christianity, something that uh, causes us to take a different path to the one we've been taking up to now. One where we simply don't go through the motions of being a Christian, but one which has definitely changed the direction of our lives. Have you known that? Well, now, the problem then is our hearts. And as Joseph Hart himself said, spelled differently, by the way, Joseph Hart, the hymn writer, true religion is more than a notion. Something must be known and felt. And regeneration is how Paul refers to it when he writes to Titus and when Paul writes in his other letter to the Ephesians, he calls it the spiritual resurrection from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and it is called a, a rebirth in our Lord's words to Nicodemus. Well, you can't have, as it were, something so uh, entirely life-changing, as it were, as, as a resurrection uh, or a rebirth, uh, that it can't be something which is watered down to simply, well, I became rather religious at a certain age, and I, uh, I kind of was stuck with it ever since. But I wouldn't say it's changed my life at all. have our hearts washed and if I may allude rather quickly to it God promised that the day would come when he would do just that and in writing Ezekiel uh, the prophet gives the words of God then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean speaking of a distant time I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Because the Jewish people had gone after other gods, and yet they were his special covenant people. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Well, why is that promise there? And why is it necessary? It's because unless we have that change, we'll not be able to, in fact, keep what God requires of us. It's not keep them in order for us to obtain salvation, but a work which 
begins with God and ends with God and achieves what we cannot actually do ourselves. And that's really what I want to say. We cannot create this rebirth ourselves. It's dramatic. It's very big. And it's lasting. Um, to reflect on some of those things, how many people do you know who have gone forward at meetings uh, who have professed Christ at some stage in their life, uh, who were reading their Bibles quietly at home and great hopes were uh, engendered in the church that they had really now come to Christ. Great hopes were, were in fact felt as we saw a person go forward at a campaign and profess uh, their faith in Christ. But there wasn't something that lasted. It faded away. It faded away. The kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is referring to and our Lord is referring to in the rebirth are things which last. We are dead spiritually. The Spirit of God makes us alive. We need something as dramatic as a rebirth, a starting again, but we need something which is of the Spirit of God. We need him to do this radical change within us. This is what it's all about. It's not about our outward observance. It's about God having to come in to our lives in a way which is radical, radical, because it changes us and it has renewed us and it sticks with us all the days of our life. Now, when you were By others, my mother, my father, and there I was, and I woke up in the, uh, the course of time to realize I was their child, and so on, but during birth, I didn't have any children after that point. No, that's quite right. And you don't have any part in the rebirth in which you are receiving. But you've got to kind of, again, reflect upon these things, but it doesn't make you a Christian sign a decision to come out. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't make you a Christian to go forward at a meeting or rally or anything like that. It just doesn't. It's dramatic. It's real. It's lasting. It renews you. It is as if you were dead, but now you're alive, and you can't undo what God has done. This is new. as you are born of water and the spirit and that water is a washing of regeneration and the spirit it's he who does it it's God's spirit who does it God the father sends the son yes God the son goes to die upon the cross as for guilty sinners yes but for whom does he die he dies for those whom he has chosen from the foundation of the world 
dead, their lifeless, they are spiritually unable to undergo this radical change. They cannot keep, as it were, all that is required of them, even if they are born to Christian parents. There has to be something which is done by another, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Of the Holy Spirit. Try as you may, you can't keep it. You can't. And yet you need. You need. Unless one is born, said our Lord to Nicodemus, again, you cannot enter. you'll wonder <coughs> sometimes you'll wonder how it is that somebody in the congregation who hasn't as it were taken a prominent part in things you discover that they're beginning to read their Bibles you didn't cozy up to them you didn't say you know I don't know anything just started to read because they were taking an interest that they have never had before. And there is a change in that person. There is a change in that person. It happened actually with John Walter's uh, wife <coughs> who had resisted uh, her husband uh, becoming uh, a preacher. And uh, she used to come begrudgingly, I think, to the Christian meetings and uh, but they were Sunday, uh, but on the, the midweek meeting she wouldn't normally come. And yet the question was asked, are you coming? Uh, and she said, oh yes, yes I'll be there, I'll be there. And John Wilberton said to her, yes, how can you come along? You, you haven't got it. He said, I haven't got it. What you've got, what they've got, I haven't got it. Where is it? Where is it? That you are coming on? And she said, oh, on one occasion, effectively that was her, where she stood. You, you may not know what is happening in the life of another person, but they're hearing the word of God and they're beginning to read their Bibles and so you should. They now sense that truth lies there. Jesus is the truth. And what he did on that cross was all important. And what the Holy Spirit does in a person was all important. And he's beginning to know who he is. The sense of being acceptable to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me try and elaborate a little bit more if I may. Um, there is a danger. We say to ourselves, well, you know, I, I, I know that that is true. Parents say it, and I've always heard it from others. It's got to be something which uh, is life-changing from the inside. I know that's true. And uh, you say, yes, okay, so what are you going to tell me? Uh, well, I've been trying. <laughs> I've been trying. something now. I hope you're listening. 
no-brainer <coughs> was a young man, late 20s, early 30s, very young man. And he was also a sick man. But he went as a missionary to the native India Indians of America in the 1700s. And he was greatly used by God. The Holy Spirit of God blessed his ministry. And eventually he died quite young, very young, the word of God to ordinary what we would call in my day red Indians the type that used to have a pebble in their head well he did and he was very successful and he loved assistance from various tribes <coughs> and one of the methods he used was what is we call a catechism a catechism the method of uh, discoursing, as it were, on a subject that is in the Bible, and then asking questions. And he was a little bit troubled about it. You'll have to bear with me as I tell you about it, because he, he didn't want, as it were, uh, to find that his discourses were all, as it were, simply lecture, and that people would think that, you know, it's all about head knowledge. he said he found it uh, profitable uh, when he did use this method of teaching uh, but he says I was exercised with fears lest my discourses would unavoidably be so doctrinal that they would tend only to enlighten the head but not to affect the heart a dear man who understood the things uh, that we speak of uh, this Sunday uh, but the event proved quite there was one weary, heavy-laden soul that he speaks of. And I want you to see how it worked out with him. <coughs> I have abundant reason to hope this heavy-laden soul was brought to true rest and solid comfort in Christ, who afterwards gave me such an account of God's dealings with his soul as was abundantly satisfying. He told me he had often heard me say that persons must see and feel themselves utterly helpless and undone, that they must be emptied of a dependence upon themselves and of all hope of saving themselves by their own doings. And many people say, well, surely that's the way we do it, don't we? We have to be good enough for God to accept us. Well, you never can be good enough for God to accept us. <laughs> so he goes on. That's what he was... He heard me say, uh, he said, that I'd often said a person must see themselves utterly helpless. Not, well, if I do the commandments of God, uh, or if I do something else, I shall be acceptable to God. But he says, he told me that, uh, he said, and he, he acted upon it. Uh, he heard me say that they must be emptied of a dependence upon themselves and of all hope of saving themselves by their own doings. Getting to David, their own doings in order their to their coming to Christ for salvation. He had been, he had, he 
had long spoken after this view of things, supposing this would be an excellent frame of mind. In other words, that would be good to get into this kind of excellent frame of mind where you're not trusting yourself, you're trusting Christ for salvation. Yes, that's what he thought. That's what I must do. That's what I must do. You know all that? That I should be saved. He had long been striving after this view of things, supposing this would be an excellent frame of mind to be thus emptied of a dependence upon his own goodness that God would have respect to this frame, would then be well pleased with him and bestow eternal life upon him. But when he came to feel himself in this helpless, undone condition, he found it quite contrary to all his thoughts and expectations. Instead of it being a good frame of mind, he now found nothing but badness in himself. So he was looking for something good there that might put him in a kind of a, a healthier position with God, his creator. But in fact, he didn't feel he said uh, that way at all. But he saw himself as increasingly sinful when he looked for this better frame of mind. He wanted to be religious. He wanted to be a Christian. He wanted to change and be the kind of person that God would accept. He wondered, he said, that he had ever hoped to mend his own heart. If he had hoped that he might be able to mend his own heart, he saw and was fully convinced as he searched to get into a better frame of mind that might be pleasing to God in order that he might be saved and forgiven and have a place in heaven, but he saw and was fully convinced that his own strength would forever fail. That's rather glum, isn't it? No, I don't think so at all. He did not now give away his heart as he was endeavoring to do to God, uh, as he had formerly intended and attempted to do, but it went away of itself. Interesting statement. He used to try to make a bargain with Christ to give up his heart to him that he might have eternal life. But he's not doing it anymore because he knows that he can't make a bargain with God. I wonder whether any of us here have tried that way of coming to Christ as a Christian, trying to make some kind of a, a bargain. Well, I'll, I'll try to be better or I will try, as it were, to read my Bible every day or I will try, as it were, to look after others in their need. I will try to show that I'm really genuine in my attempts to be a better person. Surely if I really am genuine, trying to be a better person, God will have uh, appreciate that fact and that I will then come to a knowledge that I am sufficient, pardoned, accepted with the great creator. But he didn't come to that feeling at all. After some time, he was wonderfully pleased with the way of salvation by Christ. No bargain making, so that it seemed unspeakably better to be saved altogether by the mere free grace of God in Christ than to have any hand in saving himself. You know, dear friends, that's what it is uh, to be a Christian. It's when you finally give up, as it were, every attempt of saving yourself. When you realize that you can never be that better person that you want to be, that you can never make a bargain with God, well, I'm a trial, I'm 
reflection on me because you see how I'm really trying to be this new person and to have this helped rebirth, as it were, but you're never going to possess what is done by the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot create it yourself. The problem is that we want some part in our own salvation. We want some part. And we can't have a part in it because we cannot meet the standards that God demands. He must do it all. He's done it all on the cross. He cancelled the sins of those who are believers in him. Even that thief on the cross. But also he does it by his spirit and grants the rebirth. It is real. It is real. It is lasting. It is It is transforming. It is substantially transforming. You don't become a perfect person. But the danger of perpetually trying to find your way to God on your terms is what David Reynard was so concerned about. And he was really concerned about it. And if one reads his diary, uh, one learns a great deal about how it, how it is that we become believers and how it is that we are maintained in the Christian faith. It is God's doing. And it is a helped rebirth where we obtain a new nature. Now, for some of us, we may say, well, we've been a Christian for a number of years now. And, you know, although we are new creatures in Christ, somehow the old nature seems to be around. Oh, yes, there's nothing unusual about that. Apostle Paul speaks about the old man and the new man. Uh, yes, still temptations come our way. But, you know, in spite of all, those words of my father, you'll grow out of it. Now, I've mentioned this before when preaching here. But I said, no, it's too deep. Dear friends, what conclusions do we make? If Reynard is right and this person has experienced something of God's recreation by the Spirit, uh, then have we got it? Is it uh, manifesting itself in our lives? Are we showing it? Has it been there, as it were, for, for many a year? And you say, well, uh, well yes. your life no longer your own but it's his is it you belong to him and you want your life to reflect the Christ who died for you and you live for him alone and turn your back on all the pleasures and uh, incitements of the world but you want to live for him who loved you and gave his life for you 
Compassion is God's word. Because it's God's word that lasts forever. Your decision won't save you. His death won't save you. Your righteous works won't save you. But his righteous works in fulfilling the law of God will save you and dress you in perfect obedience as you confess the God who demands attempts at renewal will fail because it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives with God's help. So what have you got? You've got something which is all of grace, all of grace, a forgiveness that is ours due to what God did. Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. You may say, well, no, he wasn't. He was slain you know, when he was 30 years of age, 33 years of age, uh, and, uh, you know, they, no, no, time is nothing to him. At the beginning, God had in mind the saving of sinners because he knew how you would sin. He chose who would be saved. You sense, feel, and know the working of God's spirit in you as one his elect ones who has forgave unto everlasting life. You know a rebirth that is so substantial. You know that though the old man still exists, there is the new person who will never die because it's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, dear friends, we leave it at that. something which is in the heart, something which changes your life. These are the things that I would wish to leave in your mind and your heart. But let's have our last and final hymn, shall we? Um, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. And it's the hymn number 432. Maybe you've heard the voice of Jesus this very evening uh, saying just that, that I have a rest for you. I just say that um, in closing some people will say to themselves if you're saying that it's only for those who were chosen before the foundation of the world therefore I can have uh, nothing to do in this he either is going to save me or he's not going to save me and uh, if I am uh, a sinner and if I am dead as we uh, say and as the Bible says we are um, how can I possibly produce life that will save me well it's it's a miracle. It's a miracle. What always came to me was something that our Savior said to somebody who was totally incapable of uh, stretching out their hands. He had a withered hand. Mark is very clear about this, but it's also in the other Gospels. And Jesus was there, and he asked the man to step forward. And the Lord gave him a command to do something he couldn't do.
to but I can't not according to what he said today I really can't but because of what he said it will come to pass then we will get to put that faith to work we will reach out in faith and spirit filled 